We're a few weeks into our series on Daniel. I think this is sermon number six. And uh, if you are just joining us today or if you've forgotten what uh, has happened thus far, let me give you a brief little summary. Uh, In Daniel chapter one, we meet King Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of Babylon, a fearsome figure. He destroys the city and he takes some of the talented young men and women from Jerusalem back to Babylon to staff his government. In Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a golden statue that is destroyed. He's terrified, he can't sleep. Daniel sets his heart and mind at rest. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue and he commands some of Daniel's friends to worship it. When they refuse to do so, he tries to burn them alive, but they are saved miraculously. And at the end of each chapter, uh, there's this pattern that develops. Nebuchadnezzar encounters God either directly in the angel of the Lord or through some faithful witness. And Nebuchadnezzar says these wonderful truths about God, his power and his majesty and his goodness. Uh, And then Nebuchadnezzar goes on as if nothing ever happened. There is this habitual regression toward idolatry or disobedience. And this is not just true of Nebuchadnezzar. This is a a part of the story of scripture. Uh, Peter led our staff through Psalm 106 on Tuesday morning in a Bible study. And we saw that the, the psalmist laments that no matter what miracles God performs, the signs God shows, there is this habitual regression toward idolatry and disobedience. No matter what we see, we seem to go back to unhelpful ways of living. Well, I think the tension in this chapter is Nebuchadnezzar and his change. Is it real? Is it sincere? Is it total? We will see, but I know this text has a lot to teach us and I wanna work through it under two headings. I wanna talk about the insanity of praise, excuse me, the insanity of pride and the sobriety of praise. The insanity of pride, the sobriety of praise. All right, the insanity of pride, what happened? Well, um, King Nebuchadnezzar at this point in the story has reached the peak of his powers. He rules the known world. The Babylonian empire stretched from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea, from the southern tip of Egypt to the northern border of modern-day Iran. He was the king of all the earth. He was a very powerful person. One night, he has a terrifying dream. He sees this wonderful tree that stretches up toward the sky. It provides fruit, it provides shelter, it is admired all around the world because of its beautiful leaves. And suddenly that tree is chopped down. It's felled to the roots, just a stump remains. And then, well, if you ever had a dream, you know, sometimes reality gets suspended. Crazy things happen that kind of make sense within the world of the dream. That's what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The tree stump becomes a man, and not just any man, a man who's lost his mind, a man living like an animal, exposed to the elements, scavenging for food. And Nebuchadnezzar wakes up, he's terrified. What does it mean? He asks Daniel, his trusted interpreter, and Daniel does two things. Daniel interprets the dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree. And and Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar a way out. He says, in effect, you are that tree. Your kingdom is gonna be taken away from you, but God has mercifully put a door in the wall of judgment. God has given you a way out. Renounce your sins. Break with your oppression. Be kind to the people that you have been abusing with your power. Um, But Nebuchadnezzar, 
progresses towards the mean. He doesn't do it. I mean, maybe he did it for a week or two, maybe even a month, but as the months went by, as the days went by, and Nebuchadnezzar remained in his right mind, he probably either, A, thought, huh, that was a weird dream. I wonder what I ate that day. Or B, he just forgot about it entirely. But God did not. About a year goes by after that dream, and Nebuchadnezzar is walking in the capital city, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful person, and he knew how to put that power to work. He was an institution builder. He built one of the wonders of the ancient world, the capital city of Babylon. There were processional avenues paved with limestone. There were these vast temples, ornate statues, and the jewel of it all were the famous hanging gardens. Picture five-story high vaulted structure with beautiful flowers and bushes and trees um, watered through this elaborate kind of uh, Byzantine structure that made it all work. He built a garden city, truly one of the great achievements in world history. And Nebuchadnezzar, staring at this city, there was a river, the river Euphrates flowed through it. He says, is not this the great Babylon that I have built by my own power and strength? And while those words are on his lips, the text says, he heard a voice from heaven, the voice of God. And in an instant, everything Nebuchadnezzar had, his city, his power, his sanity was taken from him. Well, it turns out Nebuchadnezzar's condition, the delusion of believing oneself to be an animal, is a real thing. It has a name, lycanthropy, I think it is. And, you know, there's like a brain chemistry component to this story. But I want to focus on the theological more than the, the medical significance here. And what I want to say is that this incident, Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind, is a case study in the insanity that comes from pride. What do I mean? Well, the Bible teaches us that human beings possess inherent dignity and design. Psalm 8 says that men and women, every single man and every single woman, was created just a little lower than God, with glory and honor and splendor. And we were given authority over flocks, herds, and animals of the wild. Nebuchadnezzar had that glory and honor. But like the tree in his dream, stretching up towards the heaven, Nebuchadnezzar was not content to just be a little lower than God. He wanted to be like God. He refused limits. He rejected the gift of creaturehood. And that refusal, that rejection, damaged his soul. It corrupted his mind, his will, and his emotions. It quite literally made him think and see and perceive differently. One commentator, uh, reflecting on Nebuchadnezzar's episode, says, there is a deep vein of irrationality, a kind of madness that comes from unbelief. Nebuchadnezzar and his pride was left almost less than fully human. And what I want to say here on the positive side is that one of the great gifts of our Christian faith is that Jesus makes us 
more fully human. The more aligned we are with God and God's will, the more we become the kind of people that God intended human beings to be. You are never closer to your true self than when you serve God and honor God and worship God and strive to live in conformity with the word of God. That is how you become your most true self. Now, you might say, that sounds nice. Could you be a bit more specific? Like, how exactly does that work? That's a, that's a good question. I think we should be specific. Uh, and I think this, again, allows us to draw a contrast with what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And what I mean by that is one way to uh, frame what went wrong with Nebuchadnezzar is that Nebuchadnezzar got everything he wanted out of life. And that was the worst possible thing that could have happened to him. I say that Nebuchadnezzar was rendered insane by his pride. Well, what was he prideful of? He was prideful of his accomplishments. The world, quite literally, that he ruled, the city that he built. He made a list and he crossed off every objective. He got everything he wanted out of life. And that's what ruined him. And what I want to say is that one of the ways in which God humbles us one of the ways in which God aligns us with God's purposes, one of the ways that God conforms us into the image of the most joyful, wonderful human being who ever lived, Jesus Christ, one of the ways God does that is by mercifully not giving us everything that we think we want. God mercifully does not give us every desire of our disordered soul. What God does is God instructs and God, uh, how do I put this? orders our life in such a way that we walk in the way of the cross. I think it's in morning prayer, the collect for Fridays, we say God had made, has made the way of the cross to be the way of life. We are church of the cross, so you know, this idea is pretty important to us. And what does that really mean, to, to walk in the way of the cross? One of the things it means is that it means living a life in radical service to others that our life finds its true shape as we reach out and extend our hands and extend our wallets and extend our hearts for other people. To walk in the way of the cross is not to live in order to consume. We have daily needs and we satisfy those needs, of course, but to walk in the way of the cross is not to accumulate meaningless possessions, but to give things away freely, liberally, without even thought of being paid back. You know, I could keep going on and on, but you kind of get the point. To walk in the way of the cross, to live in service of others, to not have everything that we think we want. That is one of the most profound ways that God makes us human. And when I think, well, I should say this. Let's not be naive here. Very smart people, very accomplished people, very beautiful people, People whose lives are very enviable from a certain point of view do not know God, and they seem pretty human. Of course, that's true. But when I think about the people that I know who are the most immune to the allure of wealth, the people who are the best at taking criticism, the people who actually sacrifice in order to improve the well-being of others. Aren't just generous, but actually sacrifice their own standard of living in order to improve the standard of living 
for others. When I think about those people, those are people, by and large, who follow Jesus. Those are people who love Jesus. Those are people who have staked their life on the idea that we will be happier in giving ourselves away than in just purely making ourselves better. That is walking in the way of the cross. You know, there is this insanity, this corruption of our faculties that comes from pride. There is a humaneness, a decency, and a sobriety that comes from recognizing God, from praising God, and from walking in the way of the cross. Okay, point two, sobriety of praise. God's power and God's faithfulness are displayed in Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. God's power and God's faithfulness are displayed at Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. And we're told, uh, uh, I think it's verse 25, 26, doesn't matter what verse. We're told that it was at the end of the time that God had set that Nebuchadnezzar regained normal cognitive functioning. Now, this is an important, subtle, important point. Nebuchadnezzar would, be, would have been unable to make amends while he was in his impaired state. God healed him, and then Nebuchadnezzar repented. And what's the lesson? The lesson is that the love and the power of God are gifts, not accomplishments. They're given to us freely. They're not earned. And we connect to God's power and God's love, not by the quality of our lives, but through dependent prayer. That's what we see in Nebuchadnezzar. And we're told, it's a curious phrase, he raised his eyes toward heaven. He raised his eyes toward heaven. Throughout the Old Testament, raising your eyes toward heaven is a poetic way of describing crying out to God for mercy and help. Psalm 123 says, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven until you show me mercy. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. By being driven insane and being restored to sanity, he has finally come to recognize the reality of God in his life. And he's saying, Lord, deliver me from this habitual regression towards idolatry and disobedience. I need someone from outside myself to keep me on the straight and narrow path. He, you know, to use the language of recovery, he found his higher power and he is sobered by praise. And what startles me is that this simple gesture, looking up, really works. It's just this mustard seed of faith, right? It's a tiny crack in the door. But God says, you know, I can work with that. I can work with someone who's come to the end of themselves and finally realize that they have no, no real hope of getting free, of walking straight until, um, without me without recognizing the reality of me in their lives. Uh, it's, you know, I, I am heartened by the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had several dramatic encounters with God. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And in each instance, it did not save him. It did not turn him around. I don't know what was that different about what happened in chapter four than what happened in chapter three. In chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar saw the angel of the Lord save three people from a burning furnace didn't work. And I think about people in my life, think about people that I pray for now, people who do not seem to be open to the good news of God's gracious love in Jesus Christ. And stories like this 
Remind me to keep praying, to keep hoping. God is replete with kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and patience. God can break through. Don't give up. Well, and the result of Nebuchadnezzar's rock bottom and recognition of God was praise. The verse ends with Nebuchadnezzar uh, ascribing to God a very specific title. He says, you, God, are the king of heaven. Now, that doesn't seem very significant, but think about it. This is the only time in the entire Old Testament that God is called the king of heaven. And who is it said by? The one man who could reasonably be called the king of all the earth. There's a very famous quote, C.S. Lewis. Um, You may have heard it before. He says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the rising sun. Not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's a way to summarize what I am trying to communicate about Nebuchadnezzar and his story. When we are intoxicated with pride, when we reject the goodness of our creaturehood and strive to live without limits, when we refuse to walk on the way of the cross, it distorts every faculty of perception. We don't see the world rightly. When we come into a right relationship with God, when we are sobered by praise, it enables us to see everything else. You can imagine what this story would have done to Daniel's original readers or hearers. They were Israelites suffering in exile. They were people who had kings and emperors ruling over them who seemed invincible. This story told them their God is more powerful still. Their God can take the most powerful person on earth and in an instant humble him and elicit from him a confession of God's greatness and power. It wouldn't have made the pain or dislocation of their experience any less real, but it would have given them grounds for hope. God, who is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, can set them free and God can bring them home. By way of conclusion, though, I want to kind of bring you in to a scholarly debate about the depth of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. When you read the narrative straightforward, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar's life is really turned around, and it indeed might be. But faithful readers of Scripture throughout the centuries have wondered if Nebuchadnezzar has indeed been transformed. John Calvin, for example, he lived in, I don't know, 500 years ago, and he says this about this incident. It is not known, however, whether Nebuchadnezzar's confession came from a true and genuine penitence. I rather incline to the opposite conjecture, that he had not put off his errors, but had been compelled to give glory to the supreme God. Now, what's John Calvin saying? He's saying maybe Nebuchadnezzar wasn't transformed so much as defeated. Maybe he's still someone who's obsessed with power, and he now recognizes that God has more power than him, but his heart has not been renovated in the way promised to us in the new birth. Nebuchadnezzar is still celebrating the fact that his sovereignty has been expanded in unprecedented ways. Are we sure that Nebuchadnezzar is indeed a different person? And I think there's good evidence on both sides. My point is not to resolve this debate, but I do want to say that Nebuchadnezzar and the ambivalence surrounding him mirrors in many ways 
our relationship to the Nebuchadnezzars of our day, the, em the emperors, the presidents, the kings, the powerful people who rule over us. Because is it not true that even the most devout, even the most noble, even those with the best intentions can become instantly intoxicated by pride? Even their noblest attempts to do good and make society a little bit better can spin off in all, in all sorts of unforeseen ways and actually perpetuate injustice that was never intended. That's just how the world works. This is not a critique of any particular person or a, any kind of apology for what's gone on. It's just a recognition that our leaders are this profound mixture of good and evil. And that's just the best that we can hope for in this world. And therefore, recognizing the ambivalence we have about Nebuchadnezzar points us, doesn't it, to a much less ambivalent, a much more certain hope of a just and universal rule. Nebuchadnezzar in his dream sees this felled tree reduced to a stump. Now, early readers of Daniel would have said, a stump? A tree that became a stump? Where else have we seen that? I'll tell you where you can see that. You can see it in Isaiah chapter 11, where Isaiah imagines the nation of Israel reduced to a stump. And he says, out of that stump will come the shoot of Jesse, the branch of David. Jesus Christ, the true king of all the earth. All of our Nebuchadnezzars, all of our leaders, even the best of them are going to disappoint us. We can never be sure, but with Jesus Christ, he alone is worthy of our absolute, pure, unqualified, unconditional, uncomplicated hope. He is the only human being who has a plan to set the world to right and will do it with totality. He is our king. He is our God. He will return and set this entire world to right. I want to end this little section of Nebuchadnezzar. Next week, we move on to a different king confronted by Daniel with a prayer from the Didache. It's one of the earliest uh, writings by ancient Christians that was not included in the New Testament. Here's how it goes. Remember, Lord, your church to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love. Let grace come. Let this world pass away. Let the rulers of this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. Maranatha, our Lord, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.